Welcome, everybody, to Campus Preacher Live once again, where we will be discussing same-sex issue, a response to Tim Keller. So if you are in Welcome the— Welcome, everybody, to Campus well, Preacher That's what happens sometimes when you go live. <laughs> you, forget to, you forget to mute your audio, so a small little lag. Um, I, I want to respond to uh, Tim Keller— and some of the things that he said last week. So if you're in the reformed world, um, you know, over the last few years, revoice has been a big issue. And a year ago, the PCA church uh, set up a, or I guess it was two years ago, set up a study committee to um, basically study kind of revoice, uh, same sex attraction or homosexuality, whatever the proper word is nowadays. And they, they're they're kind of commissioned to have a study report on what does it mean for someone who identifies uh, as same-sex attracted or gay or homosexual, and what does that mean for ordination? And at the end of the day, uh, the PCA basically came to the conclusion that someone who's identifying in this way ought not to be ordained. And within that, um, I'm not sure if Tim Keller was on a study committee, but uh, last Wednesday, I believe it was, during the day, if you um, Google PCAGA, they had a, a Wednesday business meeting. And in that, Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung gave a kind of a response report. And there's so many things in there that I agree with. And, and that's the thing. In, in doing this, there are a lot of things I agree with Tim Keller with. But when he goes bad, he goes really, really bad. And I think this is an issue where he goes uh, really, really bad. So a quick um, thing as I get into this discussion, uh, I'm, I'm approaching it from someone who uh, is not looking to ordain people into certain roles, um, you know, a pastor and his same sex attraction. I'm a person who's out on campus interacting with homosexuals, gays, queers, LGBTQ, whatever it is. And so whenever I think of this issue, uh, I appreciate strands, and we're going to look at this in a minute, of what Tim Keller's attempting to do. I'm trying to communicate with people who do not know the gospel. Um, they are sexually confused. They are morally confused. Uh, you know, we can go through all the Bible verses about men being in darkness and all that sort of stuff. That's really who they are, and many college students are that straight, gay, whatever. Um, and one of the things that's kind of a challenge sometimes is even what sort of language you use. Like, I, I started looking at even the idea of same-sex attraction, like, where does this come from? Uh, so for a long time, we basically used the term homosexual. And then I think it was two years ago, I was preaching up in New England, and I used the term homosexual, and some people began to adamantly oppose me because I was not using the term queer. Whereas when I was growing up, the term queer would have been you know, a bit more offensive towards a homosexual. Whereas now, uh, what's been so ingrained in the average person's thinking is that our identity, and this is the rise of trans, our identity is socially constructed, and that includes our sexuality. So we come into the world kind of a tabula rasa, a blank slate, so to speak, sexually, with nature not telling us what we ought to be oriented towards. Um, but we end up getting socially conditioned in a way by all these voices saying, here's what proper sexuality is, shaping us, and that helps orient us, literally, in the world. And uh, and so from a Christian standpoint, uh, I'm I'm kind of... I vacillate a little bit between the two because obviously as a Christian, I think what is per creation, a normal sexual desire for a man and for a woman is for the opposite sex. When he made the male female, I think from the very beginning of creation, a whole bunch of sex was ruled out. I would say, uh, you know, incestuous relations uh, from parents to children. For this reason, a man shall leave his father, mother and cleave to his wife. I think adultery was ruled out from the beginning. Sex with the beasts of the field was ruled out from the beginning. Homosexual desires would have been ruled out from the beginning. So scripturally speaking, um, I think we, we were oriented appropriately from the very beginning of creation. Obviously, there's been a fall, and we believe in total depravity, so every part of us has been affected by the fall, and that includes how we're oriented sexually. Our sexual desires are tainted. Um, but the question 
even with Tim Keller and a lot of this stuff, is all of our sexual desires morally uh, degenerate in the same way. Tim, in a sense, wants to say yes, and I believe biblically and just rationally, the answer is absolutely not. And so that's what we want to look at. Now, when I'm on campus, one of the things that comes up uh, more often every single day, uh, I'm preaching, and it's actually pretty funny, because uh, when I start preaching, inevitably what comes up, all sin's the same, and it doesn't matter if it's an, a believer or an unbeliever, uh, that is kind of the baseline thought that everybody has, all sins are equal. All sins are the same. And as I was looking into this uh, over the last couple of days, just kind of trying to read up on stuff, I came across uh, Thomas Aquinas, who from the beginning, he kind of, or and when he's arguing here, is that it's the Stoics who believe that all sins are the same. And he's like, that's not a Christian doctrine. It's a Stoic doctrine that all sins are the same. And one of the ways, there, there are a couple different ways we can kind of simply look at this, and I don't want to do a whole uh, sort of segment on uh basically the gradation of sin. Uh, but what you have in John nineteen eleven, Jesus says, the one who handed me over is guilty of the greater sin. Now, if Saul's sins are the same, how can this individual be guilty of a greater sin? The only way he'd be guilty of a greater sin is if all sin is not the same. So usually when I'm on campus, I'm preaching all sins the same. And I want to say, no, not all sin is the same. And I bring up that verse like, oh, well, that's just one verse. Okay. Well, what about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? All their sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, save blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, that is just another one. And so what, what you end up, what you end up having is there are a myriad of texts. And even if you go through uh, Jesus' statements on judgments, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment uh, than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah even. So if you're a Jew in the first century and Sodom and Gomorrah is the absolute worst place, it's a little bit like showing up just saying, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than it's going to be for Hitler. That That's kind of the, the cultural equivalent. So Jesus preaching there, you're like, no wonder they killed him. He's saying you guys are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in this context, that's actually a pretty interesting thing that Jesus would say, because going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality is a prominent thing. And what's going on with the Jews, uh, the people who are supposed to be him, they're an adulterous generation, they're demon possessed, they end up being committing deicide. And so they are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So even just the nature of judgment, and there's one other text I want to look at uh, ever so briefly, Luke 12, 47, just kind of tied into the idea that there are different strands of judgment uh, that we're going to face, but he says this, and that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So those of us who are listening to this, I'm, I'm assuming to some level you're engaged with the Bible, you're reading the Bible, and let's just say it's fornication or it's pornography. You have Joe Unbeliever out here who's uh, getting drunk. Uh, you have Joe Unbeliever over here who's fornicating. You have Joe Unbeliever over here who's uh, looking at pornography. And then you have us, who, Joe Christian over here getting drunk, fornicating, looking at pornography. These sins are greater than his because you're sinning against more knowledge. You're sinning against more grace. You're sinning against the, the cross of Christ. So even in that context, I don't think a, the doctrine of gradation of sin allows us to become self-righteous, uh, but rather it, it creates more humility in us, properly understood, so what we end up realizing as Christians, we're sinning against more light and people who are in positions of authority, like a Greg Johnson, the PCA, Tim Keller, you, uh, or, you know, other individuals along those lines, they, they have more responsibilities. So they are actually more culpable. And then he goes on to say in, uh, Luke 20, uh, Luke 12, um, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. So just a real basic rally. There's kind of a common sense element to it. If you've ever raised children, you don't treat all sin the same. As a society, we don't treat all crimes the same. Uh, we think all crimes are bad, uh, but we don't think a first degree murder is even the same as a third degree murder or manslaughter. So even in 
culture and just the basic concept of justice, we understand that not all sins are the same. But on the bright side, if you think about it, and in our intersectional culture, those who want all sins to be the same, uh, kind of rhetorically funny, then we're all equally victims. Because at some level, we've all been sinned against. And if I've been sinned against on one level, Joe over here has been sinned against in a slavery level, then, well, our sin against has been the same. And even rhetorically on campus, it's uh, <laughs> even the idea, they all know that not all sins are the same because there's usually uh, two things that come up in the context of campus uh, is when I'm preaching and they say all sins the same. And then I'll just kind of like lean in and, all right, when I say something like this, I always feel like I need to qualify and be like, this isn't, this isn't how you talk at a dinner table necessarily, but I think it's fine for campus. So they're saying all sins the same. And I'll just make a comment to the effect of, I agree, you are all like rapists. Ah! And they begin to lose their minds because they know they're not all like rapists. Uh, they're all sinners and they do know that, um, but they're not all rapists and even kind of intertwined with that when I'm uh, preaching. Oftentimes they want to rebuke me for being out on a college campus. And they say, if, if, if Jesus was here, he'd be hanging out with uh, the tax collectors and uh, sinners and blah, blah, blah. And they'd kind of go through their list. And then I always say, yeah, that's, that's why I'm here at the university of Idaho. Boom, boom. And so you guys are the sinners, but that's the reality. They don't want to see themselves as sinners. So on one breath, they want to say all sins the same. And the next breath, they want to say that not all sins the same. And they, they push back. And even, on the homosexual issue, one of the areas where you can really see pretty clearly that they don't believe all sin the same is in the, in the idea that the minute you bring up something like pedophilia, the minute you bring up something like bestiality, the minute you bring those things up as a comparison to homosexuality, they're like, don't even compare the two. And they get all bent out of shape because they know that even in our gradation of sin, uh, I, I would say someone engaged in bestiality is in a worse place than a homosexual. Uh, and then, you know, you have this gradation here. Um, and so that's one of the things that we need to think about as we're doing that. And one of the other areas that I just wanted to read uh, getting into this discussion is if you're a Presbyterian and you hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a, there, you also have the larger catechism and you also have the shorter catechism. And the larger catechism says this, question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God, wait, are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and the sight of God? The answer, all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggregations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Question 151, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? And they kind of uh, list them out. And that's where... I want to bring and begin to start particular issue with Tim Keller because he um, he does two things here in this discussion. Um, how do I want to tackle this? Well, let's let's back up a second because Tim he look at the Westminster Large Catechism on um, uh, adultery and and here's where he begins to go south uh, on the issue of adultery. So. Uh, the larger, larger criticism question 139 asks this, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? It says the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lust. And so last week or July 1st, Tim Keller sent out this tw uh, tweet to PCAGA, Westminster Larger Catechism 139 puts sodomy, all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, affections in a single list, all violating the seventh commandment. No gradations to argue some sinful sexual desires are disqualifying for office, but others are not. You can't use the confession. Now, here's a clip where he kind of develops this. This is the discussion I was talking about last Wednesday during a business meeting. 
I like the fact that we said, I forget who came up with it, it wasn't me, uh, that to desire a person of the same sex or to desire a person who's not your spouse, those are you're married, a sexual desire for a person not your spouse, one of those is a homosexual desire, one of those is a heterosexual desire. What this is trying to say is they're both wrong, and you've got to be very careful not to try to create a moral hierarchy. Uh, if I was perfectly sanctified, I would have no ability to even desire a woman, sexually desire a woman, other than my spouse. But the fact is, because we're not perfectly sanctified, all heterosexual men uh, who are married have that ability to desire that, and that is illicit. And we have to be very careful not to say, well, uh, to desire a man is unnatural, to desire a woman is natural, so one of those is a more sinful desire than the other. I, This text is actually saying no, that basically they are both equally illicit, they're both equally wrong. The capacity for sin is still wrong. It's the original sin is what's wrong with us. And I think that's very important that we don't create a little hierarchy inside. Uh, and those were two things that I thought were really important in the, uh, in, in, in the statements. Okay. So he says it's important that we don't create hierarchy, but, but, but I do think it's very important to create hierarchy. So just look at the Westminster Larger Catechism here again, question 139 and the sins forbidden by the seventh commandment. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts. Do we really, so, and this is again in the context of ordination, um, do we want to have a guy in the pulpit saying, look, I am tempted every day of my life to go rape people, but because of the gospel and I'm willing to suffer and live a life of celibacy, even though I want to rape, would we say, yeah, that man's fit for the office? What about the person who says, yes, I want to commit incestuous acts every day of my life? So even in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul, you have the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. He says, these things aren't even named amongst the unbeliever. And yet here's a situation where... Um, where are we saying that these incestuous desires, uh, that person is fit for the office, and we don't want to make any delineation between a single man who's not married, who desires somebody, and say, oh, yeah, that's basically the same as this. I would say, otherwise, otherwise you'd never have, if, if there is no desire for somebody at all. So I don't think every single sexual desire you have is actually sinful, because if you never had one, you'd never end up acting on it. It's like if you never got hungry, you would never eat. And so if you never desired sex, you just wouldn't procreate. And so Adam sees his woman, flesh, granted she's flesh of flesh and bone of bone, and so you can say they were married. But the reality of it is that the impetus towards that oftentimes is the desire for sexual union. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that sexual union, but there is something wrong with a homosexual desire for that. There is something wrong for an incestuous desire with that. There is something wrong with rape in that. So in the Westminster Confession, I would say, even if the confession itself does not delineate and it's laying out every single gradation it is, it's, it's, a, it's a confession or it's a catechism. It's, it's helping to train people thinking just because they have not laid out every jot and tittle of gradation uh, doesn't mean that inherent to these desires, unless Tim's willing to say, and I actually asked him on Twitter, I didn't get a response. Someone who said, yes, that is what he's arguing. Uh, and I looked at their Twitter. They look like they kind of broadly might follow Keller on a handful of things, but I don't think that's, I don't think that would be what Tim's position is uh, any more than he thinks that some person who's living a life of self-denial, who's actually a racist. I have racist desires every single day of my life, but I deny them and blah, blah, blah for the gospel, the way kind of the revoice people uh, lay it out. So I think on that point to begin with uh, the reality that, that Tim does not want these gradations is an error. And some people began to point that out to him. Look, Tim, yeah, you're quoting Westminster Larger Case 139. 
what about 150? What about 151? And he gets into that um, as well. And I'm not going to read all the tweets here. Um, but he just says, for PCA friends, this is on June 30th as well. Uh, for PCA friends at the GA, Westminster Larger Catechism 151 says, these sins are more heinous in God's sight. And he basically lists those out. So look up the Larger Catechism, get those. And uh, the payoff is this. Uh, what does this all mean? Notice that Westminster Larger Catechism 151 does not argue that some sinful desires are more heinous than others. Do you, re- like, I'm going to go ahead and say that incestuous rape, pedophile, bestiality. These desires are worse than others. Uh, years ago, I'm preaching up in Massachusetts and there's a young man. Uh, so I'm preaching. The place is kind of hog wild. And I get done with my day and I'm sitting on a uh, picnic table talking to some people. And a guy comes up to me and just says, hey, I want to let you know that that guy is talking about jumping you when you walk off campus. And uh, and he looked like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Good Will Hunting. Man, that's an old movie. But he's one of these kids like from Southie or whatever uh, Will Hunting was supposed to be from. And so I'm sitting there on the table and I finish up my day and I go over to go talk to him. And uh, he's like, don't you effing touch me. He's just kind of going off, just tearing into me. And he's like, look around. We're in this big plaza, kind of by ourselves at this point. Everybody had gone home. And he goes, look around. He's like, he's like, I, I could take off my coat. So it's choking you right now. I could do that right now. He's like, when you're out here, you, you got to realize you don't know what you're dealing with. He's like, there's something wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong with me. The other day I see this bum sitting there. He's just a bum. And I buy him some pizza. I think I'm a pretty good dude. And then about 30 minutes later, I see this pretty blind girl. I just want to rip her teeth out. And he's like, so when you're out here, you don't know what you're dealing with. Do we want to say that even a pastor walking down the street, sees an attractive woman, has an initial desire, uh, that's in the same category as that guy who wants to rip out somebody's teeth and whatever else he ended up saying to do with uh, with her? So, so like those are the sort of things. Uh, I, you do have, I think, a gradation, even in our own conscience. And the hard part is this, and this is even why I kind of mentioned at the beginning, and Neil and I, before the show, we watched uh, the Will Smith clip when uh, his dad is supposed to go traveling with him. If, you, if you've never seen uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in the episode where uh, his dad leaves him again, just go Google it. It's worth a watch. But anyway, Phil, uh, Will's dad, confronts him, and the immediate response of the dad to kind of justify him leaving his son, oh, well, then you're a better man than me. And that's how the, the, the basically things get turned. Oh, well, you're better than me. Oh, you think you're better than him. And what Christian wants to be the self-righteous Pharisees is, oh, we're better than them. But the reality of it is we're dealing in part even with church offices. And so if a person in the pulpit is to be above reproach, you have to make distinctions even in his sins. Because even the Westminster Confession, if you're Presbyterian, we would never argue for the perfection of a pastor. Yet, we don't think every single sin he's committed is disqualifying. And I do think that includes his desires. If his desires are beyond the norm of a woman, and even if he wants a woman depending on how his desires are being teased out more broadly from that, it's probably a place of disqualification. So I think that is something uh, pretty important to uh, begin to tease out. Now, one other thing that uh, I want to discuss, and I think this is also a key, and this is a really good thing. And here's where Tim, I think, loses a lot of people. I think he gets criticism on this. And it's going to kind of depend on where you come down. But in this clip here, Tim kind of talks about the the two fears uh, that he has in this discussion. I like the fact that we said, I forget who came up. Sorry about that. There's no reason why these two tasks need to be pitted against each other, although they often seem to be. One reason they seem at loggerheads is that attached to each understanding, undertaking, excuse me, uh, attached to each undertaking is a set of fears. One set of fears is that we will be harsh and unfeeling toward people who have been wounded and deeply hurt very often by the church. 
a hard-sounding stance toward them at this moment may only make it easier to discredit the church in people's minds. As a consequence, many are afraid that the church will speak in ways that only support the powerful cultural narrative that Orthodox Christian belief is toxic for hurting and struggling people. But the other set of fears is that we'll compromise at the very place where the world is attacking the church and our culture. We see many professing Christians on whole denominations surrendering to the sexual revolution. We do not want to be one of them, nor even now in subtle ways to sow the seeds for some future capitulation. As a natural family is a fundamental uh, unit of human society and is the normal means of care and nurture, all sins that threaten, undermine, or marginalize the family are both spiritually dangerous and detrimental to human flourishing in general. Part of the problem with regard to addressing these issues is that many of us are far more gripped by one set of fears than the other, not because, uh, but because both of these tasks were given to us, the pastoral task and the apologetic. We need to give both of them strong attention, and we try to do that in this. There's no reason. Uh, there we go. Back again. There we go. Got it. The uh, and uh, so one of the things that's going to come up a lot, and especially if you're dealing with Tim Keller, one of his disciples, and even more broadly in the culture, and I, and it's easy to pick on, uh, but I also think it's a genuine concern. So the reality of it is, take uh, Martin Luther's, uh, allegedly, I've actually never verified it, but Martin Luther, uh, we're like a j- drunk Germans on a horse falling off on the one side of the ditch or the other. So what ends up being happened, what ends up happening, and you see this, this is kind of like the dialectical process. This is what happens when people are talking about whiteness, what they're trying to do is set up a dialectical process between whiteness and then it's people of color or black, depending on how they want to narrow these things down. They want to set up these two things as a binary and act like one needs to be deconstructed and set apart. And so there is a strand of, I believe, what Tim is saying here that's legitimate. We have kind of two concerns. We definitely want to preach the gospel to people, and we want people to know that we love them, that we care for them, that there's grace, there's mercy, there's kindness. Uh, when I was in seminary, Jaron Bars, who I did not appreciate as much at the time, I, I got to see him probably about a decade later in New Zealand, and uh, he's a phenomenal man. And one of the things that he said in our apologetics class, and, and the kind of thing that's funny about the apologetics class was everything was basically like, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. I didn't learn any arguments in that class. And it was actually the thing I needed to hear more than an argument. But one of the things that he said there, if you're preaching and you're preaching in spousal abuse in the pulpit, you want to be able to preach about it in such a way. And obviously this is an ideal and we just, the reality is we can't land there. Um, you want to preach about it in such a way that the man beating his wife and the woman being beaten want to come to you afterwards. And so that's been pretty instrumental in how I want to hopefully go about interacting with certain things. And obviously you're going to have different people, Pharisees and all this sort of stuff on how you end up interacting. So, the, but, but the reality of it is I understand their concern that we want to be pastoral in one way. We don't want to be compromising in the other. And I think the way for us to do that, the way you and I can do that is if we keep the cross of Christ front and center in our eyes, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And if you take up your cross, you're taking up the holiness of God. You're taking up the justice of God. You're taking up the righteousness of God. You're taking up the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. And in that way, when you look at the cross, you can see God's unflinching hatred of sin, yet his abundant grace towards sinners. And so when you're worried about this dialect, and that's the thing, when, when they want to say, oh, you're going to fall from one ditch or the other, the, the, the best way, and there is no how-to on this, it is you taking up your cross, you being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need. We need men and women filled with the Holy Spirit in this generation that are going out and preaching. We don't need more how-tos. That, well, 
I need a little bit rewind. Yeah, I, I'm comfortable with a woman evangelizing on campus. I, I'm not, I don't think she should be preaching. I need to correct that just in case you hypercritical people are listening. The um, and so, but we need to be people who are doing that. And so those ditches that he sets up as a concern, and then Greg Johnson takes the floor of the GA and says, "Oh, my concern is people who are that, and we're chasing them away." But if you take the woman at the well, or not the woman at the well, but the woman caught in adultery in uh, John chapter eight, think of what's happening there. You and I, and I realize. Uh, this is, you and I are have a tendency to be like the law of Moses says this. Bam, she's an adulteress. Put her to death. Brings her to Jesus in the temple. Hey, Jesus, what do you want to do with her? He writes in the sand or writes in the uh, writes in the dust. What he writes, we don't really know. Uh, we can speculate. Um, I think Jeremiah seventeen eleven is that what it is? Uh, could, could be what he's writing there. This is from a woman named Margaret Barker to cite my sources. Um, so he writes there, and then the men begin to leave one by one. Jesus says, uh, who's here to condemn you? No one, neither do I. And so the reality of it is, if we are preaching the gospel, um, we're not merely showing up with the law of Moses, like these Pharisees. Um, we are trying to figure out a way to administer grace to people who are actually condemned. And we don't oppose condemnation. I think I mentioned it last week's show. John chapter 8, they want to stone the adulterous woman. They're the adulterous generation. They get hailstones in the book of Revelation. So it's not that God's law is just null and void and a horrible thing, but God's law is fulfilled in Christ. Going back to John chapter 1, he says, uh, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so if you and I are focused upon Jesus Christ, and if you and I are worshiping him, serving him, studying his word, studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and really studying how he's interacting with people, when a homosexual comes before you, or a queer, or an LGBT, whatever whatever they're self-identifying is nowadays, you, by the grace of God, should be able to stand in there firmly and say, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the grace teaches us this, you can be justified. First Corinthians chapter six stuff. Uh, you know, don't be deceived, the unrighteous is not inherited of God. But that's the way some of you were. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified. And then he basically tells them to live in that no longer. Similarly, the woman caught in adultery, he tells her to go and sin no more. So what all does this mean? The reality of it is there's a gradation of sin, and that's even going to include our desires. And this push to normalize, to kind of like want to deconstruct heteronormativity, even when they make these comments like, oh, I know, uh, uh, you know being gay doesn't send you to hell because being straight doesn't send you to heaven. Well, you know, being anti-racist or being racist doesn't send you to hell because being anti-racist doesn't send you to heaven. That, that, that sort of logic doesn't make sense. The, the, the only question we're asking is what is normative according to creation and according to redemption and how in light of that should the grace of God be working in somebody's life? And I believe the reality of it is that what should be working in somebody's life is does teach us to say no to ungodliness. And one last thought, um, I'm not sure if I saved the tweet or not. There's a, I did not. There's a, What's that guy's name? Duke Kwan uh, is his name. And he's, I think, probably one of the most liberal wings of the PCA sort of guys. If you read his tweets, they're all kind of mildly annoying. And he had a tweet. And, and here's one of the things that's kind of interesting. They don't want there to be any gradations. They don't want there to be any differences between a guy who's straight and homosexual. But then if you begin to read the people who are like sympathetic towards the revoice type situation, uh, when you read them, they'll always let us know man, how can we oppose these people? There's such a testimony to the grace of God and these people to live um, cruciform lives for the glory of God and blah, blah, blah. And they want to go on and on and on about how great and what an inspiration they are from for denying themselves 
their sexual desires. Well, if their sexual desires are not so potent or so twisted or so wrong, why is it really such a great, amazing thing? Why don't we send out tweets of how we may, how amazed we are that Christian nationalists are not acting out on their nationalism, even though that's might be my strong desire. Why are we not doing that? Because we expect there to be repentance in most sins and we expect there to be normalcy in most people in most sins. But somehow when it comes to this homosexual issue and the same-sex desires, we're, we're just utterly confused. And I think men like Tim Keller with the things that he's saying is ultimately sowing confusion. And we are in a confusing time. We're all post-sexual revolution at this point. I don't know a single man under the age of 50 that I've ever met has never, ever looked at pornography. And so the reality of it is we've all been inundated with the sexual revolution. You can't go down the street without seeing, you know, perverse, you know, uh, advertisements and everything else. So the reality of it is that's the air we're in. And that is creeping into the church. Even if we want to say, nope, we're orthodox, we're strong, we're firm. We've all been inundated with the sexual revolution. And it's going to take a long time to get out of the mess. But by the grace of God, we can come out of it. And how do we come out of it? It's by preaching the law of God fully in its totality. That just says a man should not lie with the man the way he does women. Paul in Romans one says they are handed over to degrading passions, burning in their desires with other men, men with other men committing indecent acts. And so the, the Bible talks talks about these things. And that's pastoral stuff. He's writing a church. That is pastoral stuff. And we have a tendency to think the pastoral stuff is where we go light. And I think there's a wisdom in dealing with that. Uh, you know, if you're a good coach, you sometimes get in a player's face. Sometimes you back off that sort of thing. But the reality is the Bible speaks very bluntly about these things that we're terrified to speak on in the name of missions. But if you just read Romans one publicly, uh, what's kind of surprising is, uh, at this point, it almost doesn't make too many people flinch. What's interesting is Tim Keller makes a comment that, um, he, he says that, uh, uh, like if a kid's been molested by an older person and that's shaped and twisted their desires, if you bring that up in a pastoral setting, uh, you'll be surprised at how mad the gay community or the queer community, whatever it is, gets over when you bring that thing up. I was preaching years ago in Southern California, reading Romans 1, just wailing away, and they're all just like docile and listening. I was like, okay. And then I thought I'd get more pastoral. And by pastoral, I was like, oh, you know, we'd have to look at issues of abuse and the place lost their minds. Uh, so the reality of it is, what we often think is being pastoral is really just, it is kind of being compromised. Uh, but I also understand the binary he's setting at. But in the cross of Christ, uh, we can set those things forth clearly. So if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on, what is it, Instagram, and maybe even here, we've got this audio fixed and up and running. So uh, yeah, any questions, feel free to reach out. Talk to you next week.